Hola y bienvenidos to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jaime Sanchez Jr. Today, we're talking to Dr. Jesse Hoffman Garskoff about his brand new book, Racial Migrations, New York City and the Revolutionary Politics of the Spanish Caribbean, published by Princeton University Press in 2019. Hoffman Garskoff is a professor of history and American culture at the University of Michigan. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jaime. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we start with you telling us a bit about yourself and your intellectual trajectory? Sure. Well, so as you said, I'm, I'm now a professor at the University of Michigan. I've been here since 2002, um, which suddenly as I look around, I realize I'm in the middle of my career, which is somewhat shocking. Um, but I, so I started out um, as a, uh, uh, now quite a few years ago, I was, um, after having graduated from college, I spent several years working as a social worker and community activist, community organizer uh, in a neighborhood in northern Manhattan called Washington Heights. Um, I was able to land that job uh, during a pretty severe uh, recession that was going on in the early 90s, um, largely because I spoke Spanish, um, which was, there's a kind of a longer history of, of how that came to be. Uh, I'm not a person uh, of Latino, Latinx uh, heritage, but I had learned to speak Spanish fairly well by the time I graduated from college. I ended up in this really interesting place surrounded by people who had mostly people who had emigrated from uh, the Dominican Republic in the several decades before uh, doing community-based work. Um, and when I decided that I wanted to go back and be a scholar, largely because I had, I was somewhat frustrated by the work I was able to do as a, as a social worker, but also because I had increasingly been asked to do a lot of the writing for the, the organizations that I was working for. Um, I decided I wanted to try and do a project about the neighborhood I'd been working in. And particularly one of the things that I had noticed about this neighborhood that was, um, that seemed unusual to me, although I think in retrospect, uh, it, it shouldn't have seemed unusual to me, uh, was that although I remembered and knew immigrants in my own family, um, in the generation of my grandparents, uh, and always thought of them as having sort of permanently left behind the places that they had come from, um, to, to, to forge new lives in the United States and basically to have become Americans fairly quickly and to have left everything but their accents uh, and their cuisines behind. The people who I worked with in Washington Heights were communicating, interacting, traveling, thinking about the Dominican Republic every day. And there was this really interesting set of interactions that I noticed. And I didn't know that there was a word for them. When I got to back to graduate school, when I got back to the university and got to graduate school, I realized everybody was talking about this thing called transnationalism. Uh, it was a kind of very hip in the middle of the 1990s. In, in migration studies to think about that. And so I, I, I did a first project, a dissertation project and a first book, uh, which came out in 2008 about the intertwined histories of the Dominican Republic and New York. Um, and the, it actually ended up being really only about Santo Domingo, just one part of the Dominican Republic and New York. Uh, and the, the interconnectedness of the process of urbanization of the Dominican Republic, international migration, and the advent of consumer culture through the period through the period of democratization in the Dominican Republic and and then neoliberalism. So, what led you to ultimately write racial migrations? So, I actually, interestingly enough, that this book started with a seminar paper that I wrote when I was in my third semester of graduate school. Maybe second began working on it my second semester of graduate school um, in a, in a romance languages course, uh, taught by Arcadio Diaz Quinones, who's a wonderful scholar and mentor. Um, 
And it was a course about the course was about a little bit outside of my field, but it was about the the rise of uh, Afro um, Afro Cubanismo and uh, and similar kinds of uh, artistic and literary practices throughout the greater Caribbean, especially in Cuba and Puerto Rico. Um, and I had been I think in my introductory U.S. history courses, I had been become interested in the, the Harlem Renaissance, and I, I found there to be really interesting kinds of resonances between Afro Cubanismo and um, and other kinds of poetic um, uh, movements in the Caribbean that centered on Afro-diasporic themes and sometimes Afro-diasporic language and oftentimes had people who identified as, uh, as Afro-descended people doing that, that cultural work and the Carl Renaissance. And so I said to Arcadio, is there a connection here? Like, what, what, what am I not seeing? And he suggested that, that maybe a, an interesting connection would be the figure of the, the collector and historian Arturo Schomburg, because Schomburg was a major intellectual figure as a collector and archivist and historian within the Harlem Renaissance, but had been born in Puerto Rico. And so there was, there, there, there had been some work already trying to figure out what that connection was. Um, so I wrote a paper, uh, a seminar paper about, about Schomburg, trying to think about the, having discovered that Schomburg was actually very involved in Cuban and Puerto Rican revolutionary politics in New York in the 1890s, and very much connected with Jose Martí and some of the the, the broader cross racial cross class alliances within those nationalist movements. Um, how did he move from that kind of politics into the politics of uh, black diaspora, black, black diasporic solidarities, um, and uh, what Laura Putnam calls black internationalism? Um, so I wrote that paper, published it in two thousand and one, and then when I finished the first book and got through the tenure process, I decided to come back to this project and think about it. Um, sort of more deeply. Uh, and and uh, so the, the first thing that I did was to try and think about what was the world in which Arturo Schomburg had originally migrated. I had, I had seen in that first paper that there, was, there were inklings, that it was a very interesting world where there were many people of African descent from, from the Caribbean living in New York City, uh, and where their interactions with some of the most um, articulate and, and active uh, writers and journalists and and activists um, among African Americans in the city were were quite intense, uh, and so the book sort of the book started there, and then in the end, because I'm focusing on a little bit earlier period, Schomburg sort of appears only only um, sporadically, and then more significantly in the epilogue as a way of trying to think about how to make sense of the of the set of stories. But that's the that's the origin of this project, and one of the things that the, the project has really been a a kind of a gift because um, once I decided that I wanted to go back to this project, um, the stories just kept appearing that I, I kept making discoveries of story of things that were completely unexpected to me um, really transformed the way that I understood the, the history that was, that was, that I was trying to, to, to delve into um, and also really lent themselves to a kind of narrative storytelling that I wanted to try and experiment with. Um, and, and it was really in many ways, the, the project was, I, I feel what was driven once I got into it by the set of people who created the documents, the documentary trail that I, that I followed, um, including many of the characters in the book themse- themselves who spent a lot of their lives making sure that history would understand them in, in particular ways and left what I see as really a, a trail of clues for future historians to come back and find. Um, and I was just the, f- the, the one who was lucky enough to be looking at the moment at, at that particular moment and to find them. So you mentioned the kind of cast of characters. So before we get into the meat of the text, um, you talk about a kind of forgotten history 
of Afro-Latinos and their revolutionary politics. And so the book begins with uh, this long list of individuals, this cast of characters, many of whom migrated to New York, but many others that moved between Cuba, Puerto Rico, Key West, and beyond. Why have these historical actors in some ways been forgotten? And what has been the dominant narrative that overshadows their stories until now? Yeah, so I mean, I I think I say this in the book. They're they're almost forgotten. They're not quite forgotten because, especially the most familiar names like Rafael Serra and Sotero Figueroa, at least over the last twenty five years, I think they're mentioned in many texts and in few in in, in some texts they're actually dealt with quite interestingly. Um, so they're not fully forgotten, um, but they're largely forgotten, or at least the details of their lives are largely forgotten. And I think really because, and this won't be surprising for fo- for folks who are students of nationalist histories largely because of the way that nationalism has influenced the historiography of the Cuban independence struggle. So there, you, you can sort of think about it in, as, a, as a nested set of problems. Once the, the, the war ends in 1898 um, and the United States intervenes and a new Cuban Republic is formed, the people who are seeking to try and figure out how to, how to control power in, in the new Cuba try and write histories of the movement that they've just come out of, or some of them actually weren't even part of, in ways that support their own claims to power and supremacy. Um, and one of the, you know, the, there are many dynamics on which that on which that rides, right? Men tend to write women out of the story. Um, white men tend to write black men out of the story. Um, men with, uh, who come from wealthier families and who have had extensive European style education tend to write working class men out of the story. Um, and, uh, and that's a, that's a kind of a, a familiar set of problems in nationalist histories. It's actually not so different for students of the United States from some of the, some of the rewritings of the civil war that go on at the same time, right? There's a, a kind of an effort to, to unify the various factions of white Cubans around a notion of shared identity, uh, at the expense of the former, the, pre- the previously existing coalitions and, and really necessary coalitions that involved non-white Cubans. So that's number one. Number two, in Cuba, it happens in a very particular way, which is that it happens around a mythology of racial unity, right? So it's not simply the erasure of people of African descent. It's the erasure of people of African descent in the name of an ideal of racial unity. So this is one of the reasons why I think someone like Serra isn't fully forgotten, right? Serra as the friend of Jose Marti is very useful as a symbol, never investigated on his own terms, never understood as somebody who's actually actually a forceful intellectual and strategic politician, but rather just a symbol that, look, there's a picture of Jose Marti next to his friends, the Blacks. This proves that Jose Marti was an anti-racist and therefore that the entire project that he helped to birth was an anti-racist project. And therefore, let's not talk about the continuing racism in Cuba. So there's there's a second layer there in in the Cuban case, uh, which is less like the late 19th and early 20th century in the United States, and maybe more like the late 20th century in the United States, a kind of a, a, a celebration of a racial reckoning that's imagined to have happened in the past and therefore uh, doesn't makes it uh, superfluous or maybe even racist to mention racial division in the present, even though the present is a, is a time, and I'm talking about early 20th century present as well as a late 20th and early 21st century present in Cuba, where not just the legacies of past racism, but active 
structures and processes and actions of racism continue to exclude some to the benefit of others. Um, uh, so those are those are two re, uh, kind of real powerful ways. One in which this group of people become invisible, um, and the other in which that when they're made visible, they're made visible in ways that are that are purely strategic or that really center the question uh, the question of their meaning around what they meant within the framework of trying to understand Jose Marti. So the, it, it, once Jose Marti is associated with the Cuban movement kind of as, a, as the kind of the personal uh, personification of the Cuban movement, um, then the question is, what did Marti think about race? Not what were the processes of coalition around Marti or what were the people of African descent who supported Marti thinking about him and about themselves when they supported him? And then there's a final problem in the in the area of uh, of Cuba, which is slightly different for the for Puerto Rico or for Afro Latino studies. Um, in Cuba, the the final problem is that um, the revolution of 1959 reshapes the historiography around a certain set of debates um, and really radically alters the the conversations around questions, say, of class. Um, so that there is a an effort to rewrite the, the, the revolution, the, the 19th century revolutions in a way that foregrounds class, but foregrounds class in ways that are supportive of the contemporary revolutionary states class projects, which themselves oftentimes promote class as a kind of a, a general panacea for all social inequality and distress while demoting direct conversations about race or racial discrimination. Um, so, that, so that even the revolutionary historiography, which tries to reclaim or rethink the 19th century revolutions in ways that are not necessarily congenial to the early 20th century historiography still don't necessarily focus directly on, um, on this set of characters. And the one exception I would say in every generation has been in every generation of Cuban historians to a lesser degree in Puerto Rico, but it's also true. There have been historians of African descent who have told and retold these stories. So there are wonderful sources from the early 20th century, there are wonderful sources from the middle of the 20th century, and there are wonderful sources, especially from the 1970s and 80s, that are not coincidentally are being drafted by Cubans of African descent, Puerto Ricans of African descent, who are facing the same set of challenges as these uh, historical figures and are understanding the importance of retelling and, and re recapturing and preserving certain kinds of historical narratives about them um, uh, and without whom, whose work is basically you know, without that work, it wouldn't be possible to do the work that I've been doing. And that's so interesting that there's this long fraught historiographical debate, because your story begins with the origins of three individuals, Rafael Serra, Gertrudis Herrera, Herredia, and Sotero Figueroa, which is a framing tool that you use throughout the book, that the focus on the lives of key individuals. Uh, who were these people and what do we get to know about their lives before coming to New York? Yeah. Okay. So that's that. Thank you for that question. So the, the, the structure of the book, um, the book is really, is about a group of people who gather in the, in the 1890s in New York and make this, this, make this revolution together. Um, but they came from really different places and that it occurred to me that, that it was possible to structure a book around their, origins and their their varied forms of movement into New York as a kind of a comparative history, right? A comparative history that centers for all the problems of centering on biography, that centers on biography and centers on biography of people, this group of people who are, they, they're known to exist and to have been important, but there's never really been 
the kind of sustained attention to what we could know about them as individuals. Um, so I, I can't tell that story about everybody because there are too many. So I started out with these three characters who are really central to the story. Um, one is Sotero, Sotero Figueroa, who is a, uh, a journalist um, of African descent uh, and also a printer. Uh, in the sense, he, he, he was as a trade, a typographer. He set type and, and proofed, uh, proofed copy and oversaw production uh, on the 19th century and early, early 20th century printing presses. Um, but he was also an author uh, and a journalist um, and a political figure uh, who came from San Juan, lived uh, part of his early life in Ponce, which is the southern uh, southern port city uh, in Puerto Rico, before coming to New York uh, and then eventually moving to Havana, uh, Cuba. Um, uh, and uh, the second of, of the of the key characters that I that I start with is Gertrudis Heredia. Um, and she's a really interesting figure. And in some ways, the, the, both the most, it was the most gratifying story for me to be able to try and unravel. Um, uh, and, and also the most difficult because, as I mentioned already, the layering of occlusions are, is such that women of African descent are really the hardest group of people to identify in the historical record. Um, they had relatively less access to the printing presses themselves or made less use of them. I, I, I can't really judge which is the most likely story. Um, so there's very many, many fewer things written by themselves to, to, to rely on. Um, but Gertrudis is this amazing figure. She was the, um, the granddaughter of African captives who made themselves free uh, within uh, several decades of, their, uh, of being taken captives on the coast of Africa and being brought to Matanzas, Cuba. They became free, and then they set themselves up they, as leaders of the very large African-born community in Matanzas. They were the godparents to, these are her grandparents, godparents to more than 25 individuals that I've been able to identify in the, in the baptismal records, um, many of whom were African-born, but some of whom were the, the, the Cuban-born children of African-born people. Um, and when I say African-born, that means that they were being baptized as adults in Cuba. Um, and they were also the leaders of a cabildo de nación, which were these really important um, institutions created by African-born people in uh, in Cuba. Actually, since the since much earlier, but they became they they grew very significantly in the 19th century with the late slave trade. Um, uh, so they were they became the leaders of the cabildo known as the Lukumi cabildo. Lukumi are people who are Yoruba speaking, or we identify as Yoruba speaking now, though many of them came from diverse backgrounds. They, they joined that particular ethnic community in Cuba. And this is the, these are the communities that built the set of spiritual um, and philosophical practices and ritual practices that we now know as Regla de Ocha or, or more commonly as Santeria. So she was the granddaughter of these really amazing people. And she grew up in the 1860s and 1870s in Matanzas, surrounded by Africans. And she learned the trade of midwife which was one of the, one of the few um, tra skilled trades that were open to women of African descent in Cuba. And they were open because to be a midwife meant to move independently around the city and to transact business. Um, and uh, the, the reigning gender and racial ideologies of the day suggested that those, that kind of behavior was a sort of dishonor. So it was a dishonor that, that for the most part, white women tried to avoid leaving the space for, for women of, of African descent to, to, to fill that niche. And then the more that the profession was associated with women of Afri African descent, 
the more, given the reigning ideologies of the day, white women avoided it because it then also associated this further dishonor of blackness. So she became a midwife in the 1860s and 1870s, and then kind of amazingly was able to actually attend the University of Havana um, uh, and get certified by the University of Havana in a period in which white doctors were doing their best to exclude black midwives from the profession and to try and what they thought of as elevate the profession by requiring more education for certification, but also by putting in all kinds of requirements that would exclude most black women. Um, So you had to be married, you had to be the product of a married couple, a married partnership, you couldn't be, um, uh, your parents had to have been married as well. Um, And you had to have a certain amount of money and you had to just demonstrate, quote, good moral character, all of which could be used to exclude people Um, many of the women who were actually the practicing midwives at the time. She managed to negotiate that. She got her certification and then she came to New York. And as a midwife, she was one of the, she was really, uh, this is my interpretation. She really became part of the glue that held together the, the, uh, the emigre community um, because she was able to provide primary health care, particularly maternal health and infant health to, to migrants who otherwise would have had to try and figure out some other way of, of negotiating an unfamiliar city and an unfamiliar healthcare system. Um, and so she, she became a community leader, the president of several women's associations in New York, uh, and a kind of a really, really interesting figure whose story is, is, is really, I think, quite remarkable and unique. And then the third figure uh, that the book starts out with um, is a, a cigar maker and journalist and, and political activist and teacher from Havana named Rafael Serra. Uh, and Serra, in some ways, is the, is the easiest um, story to tell. And he's the, the figure who ends up, in some ways, uh, he, he's the center of almost all the chapters in the book, because by the end of the book, he's actually a congressman, a member of the, the Cuban House of Representatives in, in Havana, although he's representing Eastern Cuba at that, at that point. Um, uh, and he's really a kind of a central figure in Cuban politics from the 1870s through his death in, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, so Serra was born. Um, it's not exactly clear what, what, what uh, status his parents has. It's, it seems like his parents had been enslaved at one point and then became free, much like his, much like Hercules' par- uh, grandparents. Um, but it's not clear. He grows up. He goes into cigar workshops. He learns to be a cigar maker, which is a skilled, a skilled and relatively high-paying uh, profession. For a person from a from a from a low so, from without high social status, um, and then he becomes involved in union politics and eventually in the movement, which is called the which is known as the the Sociedad de Color, the movement for societies for people of color to come together and acquire education, socialize in in particular kinds of ways, and uh, and oftentimes to produce newspapers for themselves. And in that moment, he's only in the early 20s, he becomes a teacher at a free school at a Sociedad de Color, which actually happens to be on the same block as, as Hercules' grandparents, Cabildo. I have some suspicion that there's actually some, some overlap between those two groups. Um, he marries Hercules, right, which is why it's, it's not just a coincidence that they're on that same block. I think probably his efforts are being supported by resources that this older African generation is, has generated and is able to dedicate to them. And then he starts publishing and uh, and producing his own newspapers or contributing to other newspapers that are that speak specifically to uh, what he and they describe as the class of color or the race of color, by which they mean people who are identified um, 
in the in the colonial moment in the colonial records in in Cuba as either Moreno, which is the kind of the polite way to describe somebody who's dark darker skin darker skinned and African descent, or Pardo, which was the, at the time the polite way to refer to someone who was of African descent and lighter had lighter complexion. Um, they saw this group as all together part of something that's they called the class of color or the race of color, uh, and they spoke in the name of that class, but also oftentimes uh, to that class of readers, um, even though there was actually, at the very same time, they offered classes in these night schools and these, these, these free schools to try and teach that community how to read and write. So you talk about how the 10 years war, which was fought over uh, the independence of Cuba, reframed the way in which Black men could engage in the anti-colonial struggle. How did these men of color you're talking about in the story enter the public square and discourse in mainly Cuba, but also other areas? Yeah, so that, that's a that's a great question. Why don't I, I, I before I get there, let me just let me just talk a little bit about the other the other areas. Um, so one of the interesting things that that I that I was able to do, at least from my perspective, I hope other people find it interesting. In this book, is to think about what was happening in Puerto Rico at the same time as the, the kind of the more familiar story in Cuba, um, uh, and uh, and to go back to the story of Rafael, uh, sorry, of, of Sotero Figueroa. Figueroa had been part of even prior to the revolution unfolding in Cuba, he had been part of a of a small, very small, literate world in the um, in the cities of Puerto Rico, which was inhabited. And shared to a degree, although not shared fully equally, by a handful of working working men like himself, mostly in the the print workshops. They were workers, but they also were, had to be literate for their for their trade. And a handful of publishers and journalists, many of whom, uh, some of whom had studied in Europe and had kind of European education, who were interested in trying to to apply what they thought of as enlightened and rational. Uh, kinds of politics and what they called liberalism to the, what they saw as the problems of the colonial order in Puerto Rico, because Puerto Rico was a, a, a Spanish colony. So they wanted to modernize, they wanted to in, improve publishing and education, they wanted to move towards a, a system of free labor and away from slavery. Um, and in many instances, the working, the, 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 the possibility of working alongside Afro-descended and working class uh, literate men in the workshops created some alliances between those workers and this group of more elite intellectuals. Um, so that's 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 that backdrop, which sort of mirrors the backdrop of of Serra's um, activism within the labor movement in in the in the cigar workshops in in Cuba. So when when the revolutions unfold in the, not just the Cuban uh, Ten Years' War, but also the the revolt in Lares in Puerto Rico. And the um, the revolt against the monarchy in 1868 in Spain, um, and the overthrow of the monarchy, and the, the the writing of a more liberal constitution, eventually a short lived republic. These three simultaneous revolutions, of which the most kind of lasting and transformative will be the the Cuban uh, insurrection, which lasts for a decade and it's called the Ten Years' War, open up really interesting new spaces within the politics of the Spanish Caribbean and its a kind of extended, far flung exile communities for people like uh, Serra and Figueroa. Interestingly, and this is one of the challenges of the book, not 
that much space for women. So therefore, in, in a sense, when the public square becomes opened by these revolutions, it doesn't necessarily create space for women in the public square quite the same way it does for men. But so here in this this part of the of the of the book, I I continue the story of Figaro and uh, Serra, and then add a third set of characters, a group of uh, a, a pair of brothers who would become also very close allies with this group of, of of migrants later, who were growing up in Key West, Florida. Their family, uh, a family of of uh, Afro descended Cubans, had resettled. In, in Key West really early on it, after the, the eruption of the war in eastern Cuba uh, and remade their lives there in the community of, of cigar workers in, in, sub, in, in, in southern Florida. So there's three, three places where new space opens up. The most familiar of them is the Cuban uh, story. And I'll kind of tell that first, even though in the book I tell it last, uh, because it's where you started. Um, so the most familiar uh, part of the story is that in Cuba, as the insurrection unfolds, particularly in eastern Cuba, um, the an insurrection that was originally initiated by a group of fairly well-to-do, uh, for the most part white um, and uh, and uh, liberal and not not particularly radical um, uh, Cubans who were dissatisfied with the uh, the way that um, that that Spanish rule had basically bankrupted them through by separating them from U.S. markets. Um, uh, that group of folks um, declare independence, uh, declare the existence of a republic, and then set about looking for allies within Cuba to create a lasting and successful war of independence. And they end up finding allies among a group of, um, a really interesting and varied group of men and women in eastern Cuba in the province of Oriente. People who um, included a, many, many people who were of African descent and people who were of African descent who had been small landowners, who had been uh, small trades tradespeople, and who had had actually, uh, up until about a decade earlier, a fairly, within the frame of, of the Caribbean basin, had been fairly insulated from the worst aspects of the plantation economy and the ways that the worst aspects of the plantation economy had repercussions for the race relations of, of regions. This was an area where slavery existed, um, but where there were many, many people of African descent who were free and who had been able to attain in freedom resources, land, and certain levels of respectful treatment in the local social order. And about a decade earlier, they had started to be displaced much more radically by the spread of sugar plantations in the East. So they joined the rebellion in force, and they really pushed the rebellion towards a more radical framing around race and class in which they they oppose the imposition of of this plantation-based racial order they oftentimes oppose the creation of plantations in general favor more more broadly dispersed land and through that rebellion they begin to attack plantations uh set free people who are being held captive on plantations and inviting them to join the rebellion and they eventually push the white leadership to accept uh, a, a, prince, a set of principles of abolition, universal abolition of slavery and equal citizenship for men on, in, irrespective of color or former uh, status as slaves. Um, by, the middle, by the middle of the 1870s, this is, the, this is the, the direction that this particular movement has gone. So that, as you can imagine, creates a lot of space, uh, new kinds of space for African-descended people to jo- join in and participate in, in political life. 
particularly in this case in the in the in the form of military service um there are a number of of african descended uh military officers who rise in the ranks in this period are able to mobilize this popular sentiment or uh, and mobilize these ideals of racial equality and fraternity um through their their military service and the most famous of these is antonio maceo um who who becomes really the the lead, the, the one of the highest ranking and most influential generals in the Cuban struggle and continues to be through his death in 1896 um, and is also a key figure in the book. So that's the Cuban side. But really interestingly, at the same time, in Puerto Rico, where Sotero Figueroa is living, although there was a brief uh, rebellion in, in 1868, it was pretty quickly uh, reversed. Uh, and Puerto Rico becomes a place where um, the, the Spanish Republic, which has been founded in the early 1870s, seeks to try and create the reforms that uh, to sh- showcase a set of reforms, liberal reforms, Republican reforms, that will be the kind of the model, the counterpoint to the Cuban re- rebellion. And they say, look, in Cuba, they're, they're pushing for independence. But if you stay with Spain, Puerto Ricans, and maybe Cubans, you'll hear about this too, will give you more of a right to vote, will give you uh, uh, citizenship rights that look somewhat more like uh, what citizenship looks like for people living in, in, the Spanish, in the peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula, Spanish subjects there, we will start to equalize the status of residents of the, of the islands with the residents of mainland Spain. And those of you who are familiar with the contemporary debates around statehood and uh, independence in Puerto Rico will recognize that these were the same debates going on in the 1860s and 70s. Should Puerto Rico just become another province of Spain, or should it be an autonomous region of Spain, or should it be independent was already a question uh, that was very much in the in the minds of of this group of reformers. So they allow Puerto Ricans to start to organize political parties, to start publishing newspapers in the 1870s. And that moment, that group of liberals who I had told I've already told you, oftentimes stood side to side with trades tradesmen, oftentimes Afro-descended tradesmen in the print workshops and the other kind of literary spaces of the city. They reach out to that group of people and recruit them to be members of their political party. And they very quickly are able, by mobilizing um, literate working men into their part, into the liberal party, they're able to win a, a really interesting set of elections and take power, local power in the municipalities of Puerto Rico in the 1870s. By the middle of the 1870s, the, the monarchy is restored in, Q, in, in Spain, and the, the restored monarchy appoints conservative governors to Puerto Rico, and they crack down on that group of liberals, and they, then they again exclude from citizenship rights uh, the literate artisans like Sotero Figueroa, who is coming of age as a writer and as a, as a thinker in this period. So he's both experienced the really ex- exciting moment of the expansion of suffrage to all literate men, and then also experiences the reaction in the middle of the, of the, of the 1870s and the pushback against that. Um, and so that, that, those are the places where he really enters into the public sphere as a writer. He begins to publish in some of those little liberal newspapers. Um, and he actually tries to found some of his own newspapers in this period as well um, uh, and gets in trouble with the law. He's, he's imprisoned several times for, for writing um, things that are too radical or for speaking in front of workers' organizations and, and espousing a form of, of auto, uh, uh, autonomy for Puerto Rico that was considered to be off limits. So that's that's case number two. There's this there's the the struggle in Eastern Cuba, which opens up new interesting spaces. 
Um, there's the electoral politics that happens at the same time in Puerto Rico, which opens up really interesting uh, sets of, of new kinds of ways of engaging as a, as a working class person of African descent in liberal politics. And then there's this really other interesting case of Key West, which was really surprising to me, um, although I guess it shouldn't have been if I had been paying attention. Um, so if you think about Key West in 1868, that's, it's, a, it's an island off the coast of, of in the Gulf Coast of Florida. Florida it was, a, was a, a slave state and a Confederate state, which is just in 1868 being readmitted to the Union under, under the conditions of Reconstruction, right? So Florida gets a new constitution in the, in, right then in 1868 right when Cubans start arriving in en masse, fleeing the war in, 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 uh, in Cuba, but also fleeing the tariff structures that, were, that created the war. To, so they, Cubans begin producing cigars in Key West with Cuban tobacco and Cuban workers in order to avoid the new tariffs on cigars. And they, they, they're able to, to funnel those cigars to the U.S. market. Um, right at the moment when Reconstruction is happening, and that means that... Um, Key West, which is was the largest city in in Florida at the time, was a really active place for the experiments of interracial democracy that took place, and and that oftentimes I think everybody but specialists forget um, were the possible outcome of the Civil War before the 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 end of Reconstruction and the kinds of compromises and and that led to Jim Crow and and the new white supremacy in the late nineteenth century. So Cubans are arriving there, like the like the Bonilla family, Jeronimo and Juan Bonilla and their family, um, right at that moment. And another thing happens in the period uh, when they're arriving, which is also unexpected. And I kind of stumbled across as I was teaching an unrelated class about the history of, of immigration policy, is that one of the one of the interesting legacies of the radical project for interracial democracy that some. Republicans in Congress were still defending in 1868, 69, 70, um, is that uh, in a process, in a, in a floor debate around how to reform the immigration policies of the moment, uh, an aging abolitionist and, and a radical Republican stood up on the floor in the Senate and said, we should do all these things, but we should also remove the, the language in the naturalization statute that says only white men can only free white people can can be uh, become citizens of the United States, and there's a whole hullabaloo because it's the 1860s and early 70s, and there's a huge movement in Congress against Chinese immigration and a huge anti-immigrant sentiment, and so there's a whole kerfuffle about this. If we take out the words "white," then Chinese will be able to become citizens, and that's a thing that many many both Northern Republicans but also Western uh, and Southern uh, Democrats were not particularly interested in. Um, and so they come up with a compromise, thinking that there are not likely to be very many people of African descent who come uh, to the United States and try and become citizens, uh, and thinking that it's only logical that if the 14th Amendment says that people of African descent born in the United States can be citizens, um, they add, a, rather than taking the words white out of the phrase, the, the word white out of the phrase, they add the phrases of African descent and nativity. So starting in the summer of 1870, it's actually possible for people of African descent and nativity to apply for naturalization in the United States. And that means that Jeronimo and Juan's father, who's also, whose name was Francisco Bonilla, who was a black shoemaker from, from Havana, um, in the fall of 1870, in, in the run-up to the elections of 1870, goes to the, uh, before a judge in Key West, and he, like many other 
Cubans, both white Cuban workers and Cubans of African descent, become U.S. citizens so they can vote in elections and participate in the really interesting experiments in uh, in interracial politics that are going on within the Republican Party in Key West at the time. And this is a kind of a a kind of a, a really remarkable thing to discover that this accident of history that this this set of debates in that open up naturalization in this particular moment the particularities of the moment when they arrive mean that for many of these cubans the both the white cubans who create electoral alliances with white us born white folks us born african americans bahamians and black cubans that their first experience in electoral politics at all, because remember, Cuba was not an electoral democracy at the time. Their first experience was one in which the presumption was a party would appeal to people across racial lines. Um, and the same thing is true for the Cubans of African descent. Their first experience, before they ever had an experience of electoral politics in Cuba, this group of emigres had an experience of electoral politics within the United States in which they were valued and important for their ability to swing votes in elections. Although they oftentimes complained that they did not get their share of the spoils when the time came, right? So that they were relied upon and turned to for uh, to produce electoral victories, but they didn't necessarily get the political appointments or the judgeships or the other kinds of uh, of appointments that they that they deserved as a result of that of that force. Um, so at the same time that in Eastern Cuba. Um, the the rise of a of a, a more radical, more egalitarian military leadership um, is the result of the war. Uh, in the civilian wing, the, the among the civilian parts of the independence movement, people, especially who are living abroad, have this other really interesting experience in which the the, the abstract ideal of equal citizenship, which the the revolution has now uh, kind of announced, is 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 going to be its its um its modus operandi actually can be put into practice by um, nationalist leaders facilitating, working with, and and supporting uh, Black Cubans to become citizens and to be able to vote. That electoral story has so many interesting parallels to 20th century and contemporary political debates, thinking about the utility of the Latino vote, but <laughs> yes, we can save that for a different discussion. <laughs> That's right. I, I have often thought that if, if, you know, whenever you're trying to interest uh, a journalist in your 19th century history, they want to, they want a contemporary hook. And I, it has sometimes thought that there might be a, a moment to talk about Latino politics in South Florida because <laughs> Latinos swung the 1876 and 1878 elections in South Florida. Absolutely fascinating, but let's let's stay on track here. Okay, um, how did we get to how do we get to New York? Um, can you expand on the fascinating process of political exile? And you also mentioned the concept of quote migrating while black. What does that mean? Yeah. Okay. So so to New York. I mean, New York was a. This is something that I think um, you know if you look at Luis Perez's work or Lisandro Perez's work um, uh, on you know Luis Perez on becoming Cuban about how important. The United States was from the beginning of the, of the 19th century in the formation of the Cuban political and literary class. Um, and Lisandro Perez really situating that specifically in, in the, in specific neighborhoods in New York. Um, what's interesting about New York is as a, a 19th century New York is that as a Latino community, the Cubans who were the largest community of Spanish speakers in New York throughout the entire century, um, they were unlike most immigrant groups, they were disproportionately wealthy and well-educated and well-situated. Uh, and it's basically because 
as Cuba developed as a an economy that was a slave economy that was basically built on ex- exporting three main crops: coffee, tobacco, and sugar, um, and the and the derivative products of those. Almost all of the machinery that was used to produce that, and all of the capital that was used to produce that, came from New York City. And almost all of the banking, but also commercial activity that distributed that pro- those products went through New York. Uh, New York was this kind of incredible commercial hub and depot. Uh, and so the the Cuban the the peers of the Cuban steamliners in New York were a really important and active space of commerce. Um, and most of the wealthy Cubans did their banking in New York, uh, sent their children to go to prep school in New York um, to, and to university in New York. So many of the doctors and lawyers and engineers of the late 19th century in Cuba, rather than being trained in, in Spain, which was the colonial empire, right, um, or in France or England, were, were coming to New York as, as that space. So there's this really interesting um, already existing community when the war breaks out in 1868 and and that and and that community then gets a huge number of uh i would say a huge number of thousands more refugees mostly wealthy refugees from the fighting in 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 cuba or from the repress the, the, the spanish repression in cuba flee to new york and set themselves up really as the kind of the the spokespeople for the cuban struggle and there's actually a lot of tension around that because the folks in Key West and the folks in Eastern Cuba are, are much more focused on popular democracy, on racial equality than the fairly wealthy folks in who, who are the majority in New York. So how do Cubans of color, and particularly this particular group, end up in, in and around New York, given, given that they're not the ones who are, who are most, um, you know, who are, the, who are the biggest part of the community in the 1860s and 70s? Um, uh, this was a question that I wanted to, to ask. And the second question is the one that you mentioned, which is that, which is the question of what is it, what was the experience like of migrating while black? What, what, is, what, what does being visually identified by New Yorkers or by other Cubans in New York do uh, and change about the story of how we think about settlement in New York? And I think this really comes a lot out of my, my earlier work in which I, that, that was from the beginning, a central question about the ways, the thinking about the ways that the Dominicans in the late 20th century were racialized when they arrived in the United States. They, they came with, with experiences of racialization in their own society, with experiences of colonial r- racialization, and then they experienced a new set of racializations in specific neighborhoods shared with African-Americans, Puerto Ricans, and, and people, white, various other folks in New York who are understood to be and understood themselves to be white. So I wanted to ask that same question about the 19th century. So there's two questions. Who, you know, who are the pioneer Afro-Latinos in New York? And I don't mean to say that there weren't some Afro-Latinos who might have been in New York in the 1840s and 1850s. I think there's some evidence that there were small groups of, of, of Cubans in particular, but maybe folks from other places who made their way through in, in small small numbers. But I really wanted to try and think, how do, how do you go from a, a mostly wealthy community to a a, a community that's divided between workers um, and, and and wealthier folks, and in which many of the workers are Afro descended, um, and then what is the meaning of race within that process? And that's what I would call migrating while black. Um, so the answer to the first question is: It seems like the first large, you know, the, if you go back to the 1870 census, um, which is the first that for which I have this kind of detailed information about this community, 
it seems like a lot of the people of African descent who are in New York, or at least the people who census takers see as being black or mulatto, which is not the same as people's own identifications, but it's what we have to work with, um, that many of those folks came as employees of wealthy families, right? And this is not surprising. It's a slave society. It's a patriarchal slave society. And so there are households are, are composed of people of varying status. And many times wealthy Cubans have household employees who live in their houses, um, who are people of African descent, um, and they live in their houses as members of the family, but as, as servants, as employees in the family. So they might be coachmen, cooks, waiters, uh, laundresses, maids, uh, servants of various kinds. Um, and in some cases, uh, you can see on the 1870 census that those um, imp- the household employees have the same last name as the people who are their employers, uh, which suggests that either they or their ancestors at some point were enslaved. They might have had the same exact role, but they, instead of being free people, they were enslaved. And it even raises the question as to whether some number of those people were freed when they, when they arrived in the United States. That is to say, you were a, a person who was still enslaved in Cuba, where slavery didn't end until the 1880s. But when you come to the United States, with that, when that family relocates to the United States, they bring a household employee, domestic servant. That person is now becomes free because the United States is a place that doesn't recognize enslavement. Um, uh, so that's the first group. But it becomes pretty clear, even by 1870 and then again by 1880, that many of those, many of the people who come in those kinds of relationships of patronage and, and power um, uh, find ways to settle out into the community and become independent settlers. Uh, oftentimes doing the same kind of work. So they, they, they continue to do, if they're women, they continue to do laundry or to be dressmakers or to be, to be maids, but they live in their own households. Um, uh, and if they're men, they could be coachmen or porters or waiters or, or, rest or, or, or cooks. Um, but again, they live in their own households. And what's really interesting in the question about migrating while black, if they are identified by U.S. census takers as being black or mulatto, and again, I want to be clear that I don't believe that that necessarily indicates their permanent racial identity. It's a, it's a single data point, but it's the one that we have to work with. But if they're identified in that way, they almost universally live in residential spaces that are shared with African-Americans and with other Cubans and to, to a small degree, this early Puerto Ricans of African descent. So there's a real, there's a real consequence for migrating by black. And that consequence is that you are forced into residential spaces that are segregated and therefore, um, forced into or can benefit from uh, the kinds of horizontal relationships with the other people who live in those spaces. So you see very, very clearly that Cubans of African descent also marry, intermarry with African Americans at a, at a fairly consistent rate, um, or with other Cubans and, and, and to a lesser degree, Puerto Ricans of African descent. So there's, there's not just residential spaces, but also domestic spaces that are shared um, around uh, along racial lines. And that it's very rare to see Cubans of African descent, except for the ones who are living as live-in employees, sharing residential spaces with white Cubans. So the, the formation of this community is 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 really is really race is a really important um, uh, analytic for understanding the formation of this community, especially as the community tries to configure itself around a shared national politics. So the third space that so that the, there's there's the 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 domestic employee settlement, um, and then, uh, and then settlement out. And then the third story that I try and tell about this process of, of, um, 
of migration and the, and the racial consequences of our are that by the middle of the night of the 1870s, you start to get an f- influx of cigar makers. Cigar, the cigar industry is huge in New York in this period. There's lots and lots of consumers of cigars. Uh, and within the very large cigar industry, which, which employs tens of thousands of, uh, of people, um, there's a small niche which, sets, which is set up in the, in the 1870s of high-end $1 and $2 cigars that are hand-rolled cu- cigars with Cuban leaf. Um, and just, just at the same time that they create factor, or a little bit later than when they create factories in Key West, and before when the, the, the investors start setting up factories in Tampa, um, Cuban, Spanish, and German, and U.S. Uh, entrepreneurs set up Cuban cigar factories in New York and start recruiting Cuban cigar workers to, to roll them. Um, and that's how you start to get a, a much bigger influx of independently settling African-descended people, pe- people who either come straight from Havana or come through Key West before they get to Havana, arrive independently on steamships rather than in the service of, of wealthier families, um, and then have to solve the question of settlement on their own. Because if you are an employee of a wealthy family, well, settle, where you're going to live is settled for you by your employer. Um, but if you're coming independently, maybe with a group of other uh, workers on the, on, the, in the same, on the steerage on the same steamship, you then have to set out into the city and not just find employment, but find a place to live. And this is where the, again, the idea of migrating while black becomes really, I think, really important. Um, you think that every immigrant who arrives at the piers has to solve a set of problems, right? Where do you live? Who can you marry? Where do you send your kids to school? What do you do when you get in trouble with the law? Where can you find work? Where do you bury your dead? All, all This is really familiar from immigration studies materials. And the question is, how does being a person who's identified by New Yorkers as a Black person change the answer to all those things? Um, especially since the answer typically is you find people from the same place that you're from, right? So if you're a Black Cuban, is the answer that same answer? Do you find people who are from Cuba, independent of their color? Cuba, a place where there still is slavery, where the, there's ongoing debates about whether the people, whether whether people of African descent are going to qualify for Cuban citizenship if there ever is a nation created in Cuba, um, or do you turn to people who are the same color as you? Do you do you, do you seek brotherhood and solidarity and support from the people who live in the same segregated housing complexes as you do, um, even though they don't speak your language and they're not from the same part of the world as you are. And it's that dynamic um, that I think is really so fruitful for thinking about Afro-Latino studies. And obviously, I'm not the one who, who's invented it, but really trying to think about uh, Afro-Latinos as people who operate in, in these kind of multiple spheres, oftentimes on a daily basis, right? You might wake up in a, in a, in a segregated apartment um, and interact with, with, um, with African-American n- neighbors, uh, and then go to a workshop where you're working alongside white Cubans, and then go to a club in the evening where you're only with Cubans, uh, but they're also only Cubans of African descent. And so you might operate different times of your day in different parts of the city um, in ways that deal with the color line and the, and the interaction between color and nationality and language in different ways. Um, and so what I found, uh, again, by looking at the segregation patterns, particularly in Greenwich Village, but also in the area called the Tenderloin, the East, the, sorry, the West 20s and 30s, um, and then uh, for a later port- time in the book, uh, the, the, early for- the early settlements in Harlem, especially along 3rd Avenue near 99th and 100th Streets, um, that there's the patterns of segregation that we know of from the 20th century in New York, where there's very large 
almost entirely black neighborhoods um, in Harlem and Brooklyn and, and then the, in the Bronx and other places didn't yet exist. There was a very small African-Americans were a small percentage of New York City's population in the 1880s and 90s, about 2% of the population. And they tended to live dispersed in all of the neighborhoods of the city. But there were some neighborhoods where they were more highly concentrated, where they, those neighborhoods, the Tenderloin, Greenwich Village, and, 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 and the, the East 90s. Um, and in those areas, they weren't the majority, but they were, there were more Black people than there were in most, most neighborhoods. And those had reputations as Black neighborhoods. And within those neighborhoods, you really can't see segregation in the way that it looks in the 20th century as like big census tracts where everybody's, everybody's black. What you see is that three or four buildings in a row are almost 100% black. And then the rest of the buildings on the block are, are, have no black people living in them, at least according to the census. Um, and then there maybe are two or three more buildings. And these little clusters of buildings scattered around, but more clustered in these more black neighborhoods are the spaces into which independently settling black cigar makers have to find housing. They, it looks from the records as though probably some of them were intermediate in, 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 in appearance and were able to figure out how to find spaces and ended up being counted as white. But many, many of them, and it's most of the ones who end up becoming politically important in my story, settled in buildings that were, that were occupied 70 or 80 or 90 or 100% by African-Americans. Um, and almost no white Cubans settled in those buildings. Although they settled on the same blocks within, within, you know, four or five steps. So you have this really interesting process of, of class-based community formation in which working class Cubans oftentimes are living close to one another. Um, they're oftentimes working in the same spaces, but the black and brown working class Cubans live in residential spaces that are reserved for African-Americans and have this whole other set of contacts with African-Americans. Um, I think I'll stop there for that question, unless you want to follow up with something. I don't know if I've missed something that you were trying to get at. No, that's uh, a lot more than I ever wanted. Oh, sorry, you can cut it back. <laughs> um, I'm just joking. So at the center of the book is this organization called La Liga. Um, and you mentioned kind of these uh, preceding earlier social networks in New York um, created by Cuban immigrants. You talked about um, the formation of this community of color in New York. Um, what was the original purpose of organizations like La Liga? Um, what went on in those spaces and how did they become political hubs? Yeah. So the, the express purpose of La Liga and other organizations, which were simultaneous to La Liga, in, in, especially in Cuba, um, was educational. Uh, there was a whole movement, I mentioned it briefly, uh, for, uh, around the Sociedad de Color, the Societies of Color. Um, it, it was less the case in, in Puerto Rico where what there were were class-based societies and they tended to be mixed race. Um, but in Cuba, uh, the origins of the labor movement had, were, were really located in self-help, um, mutual assistance, and educational societies. And those tended still to be exclusive. Um, and so the, the, the ones that had no, that were not called anything were mostly for white, white folks and sometimes only even for people born in Spain. Um, and so you see by the late 1870s and then all the way through the 1880s and into the 1890s, a movement to create separate um, uh, organizations that would support the education and mutual support of workers of color. Um, and these were supported, 
These were created by uh, activists and leaders of color like Rafael Serra and Juan Guadalberto Gomez and, and, and other, uh, others of the, kind of the first generation of post-emancipation black politicians in Cuba. But they were also oftentimes supported by elite white uh, liberals, but even also the colonial government um, on the theory, uh, which, again, also will be familiar to some folks who know about 19th century U.S., on the theory that um, uh, that there, there needed to be efforts to educate and civilize the newly freed or soon to be freed population um, at the moment of abolition uh, in order to ensure their successful transition into a stable society, right? That the, the, there was an idea that there was an insufficiency among black Cubans that needed to be resolved through European style primary education. There was also, so that's one side of it. The other side of it is that there was a radical and horrifying exclusion of black people from the public school system, which was already fairly inadequate, but which, which can, against the law, against Spanish law, continued to exclude black children from the, the benefits of primary education and to, to relegate them to the lowest echelons of the, of the economy through the, the, through withholding uh, basic literacy and other kinds of educational benefits. So all of that goes into this project. La Liga is an outgrowth of that. It's a, it's, it's presented in the, in, in, in the press at its founding as really uh, another example of a, uh, a kind of a self-help organization designed at taking response we, the class of color, will take responsibility for ourselves and to educate ourselves. And this is going to be a way of both improving our lot, but also of staving off any kind of social uh, instability because an educated and well-integrated class of color is the best, it, it will be the best um, vouchsafe for a, for, to, to avoid racial and class conflict in the future. But as you dig a little bit further, you see that La Liga is different in a couple ways. One is it's an immigrant society, right? So it's it's uh, also really set up by a group of people who have been dedicating themselves already for a decade and a half to the problem, to solving the problems presented by migrating while black, right? If you migrate while black, you have to figure out where to live, whom to socialize with, how to organize all kinds of aspects of social life. This group of people, this community of people have done that. And they, and, and, and so the network that is mobilized for La Liga isn't the, ne- isn't a network as it would be in Cuba that's governed by people of the same of this, let's say, of the same African ethnicity or of the same uh, political bent locally. This is a group of people who might be dispersed across the city, living in all kinds of neighborhoods along other people, and who come to this place in order to reconnect with people who are from the same background as themselves. So it's an immigrant society that's a little different. And the other thing is that it it's very clear from the from Liga's original uh, perspective. That it, so it also includes Puerto Ricans, which is another difference. Um, uh, and they actually even specifically men- mention that the children of Cubans and Puerto Ricans of color who are living in New York, growing up in New York, and who choose our customs and our language will also be welcome, right? So there, there's a, already a, an acknowledgement that they're, as immigrants, their children may be growing up with a different vision of solidarities than the ones that they have, but, they, but that they are encouraging those children to come to this space and, be, and take part of it. So that's that's the the immigrant society and the diasporic nature of the of the of the of La Liga is somewhat different. Um, and then the other difference is that while the focus of most of the educational societies in Cuba and of the mixed race educational societies in Puerto Rico is really on basic primary education, that is to say, you know, workers who have been denied access to, to, to elementary school need to learn the basics of arithmetic, grammar, 
um, uh, world history, the other things that you would get in grades one through four, let's say, uh, to be brought up to the level, uh, to, to, to kind of a basic level of, of literacy. Um, La Liga sets itself out and says, we're really interested in people who already have basic literacy and who would like to polish their, um, their writing, reading, uh, and historical skills to, and mathematical skills to the level that they might be able to enter, enter the professions, especially the professions from which uh, men of color have traditionally been excluded. So they have a, a real specific um, project, which is, re- which is really about promoting the possibility that people who've already figured out how to educate themselves in their workshops during, in their free time outside of their waged labor to the level where they, where they have primary education, they can write, they actually know how to express their ideas that they want to try and now polish those skills up to the point where they might be accepted in a world of professionals and, uh, and literary figures and, and, and to really become intellectuals. Um, uh, so that I find to be really interesting because La Liga became, you asked the question of, about how it becomes also a political space. Um, I think it's actually pretty common for um, given the precarity in which most of the people who are organizing uh artisan societies, but, you know, workers, worker societies, but also, um, uh, Sociedad de Color in Cuba were operating on, it's not at all uncommon for them to turn to political parties or political figures for support. Um, and th- that, that could be the support, you know, in terms of monetary support, but also the, the kind of protection that having somebody who's famous and of high status come to your events and express their support for you can provide in a world in which people might be suspicious of your activity or, you know, that you might be too political or that you might be, you might be organizing something that's seditious. Um, so it's not surprising that La Liga would do the same thing. But what's really interesting about La Liga is that they end up turning to Jose Martí. And Jose Martí, who was a very well-known journalist and politician, but was not really um, known for the, to be the kind of literary figure who rolled up his sleeves and spent a lot of time with workers or with black people. Um, he, he took them up on this and actually made La Liga his first sort of political headquarters in New York. When he, he starts to think about how to transform himself into a popular Democrat, he, he sees this as a space. And so he's able to, um, he spends a lot of time there. He builds a lot of trust with them. He develops the messages that he's, that he, Send, ends up sending to a much broader base of working class and Afro-descended Cuban and Puerto Rican supporters by working this material out uh, on a weekly basis with the with a handful of people at La Liga, um, and then he and and they do a lot of work to to promote the the an image of La Liga as a space that was the birthplace of this movement. So they they invite reporters to watch as they interact with Marti in these spaces. They perform. Uh, a particular vision of what the relationship between him, he as a political figure and they as a political base should be to try and, to try and distance themselves from some of the um, negative stereotypes around populism and around popular democracy, as well as the negative stereotypes of black voters. Um, And then after Marti dies, the, the, the men of La Liga invest a huge amount of, of effort in trying to recount the story of what had happened there to try and really convince themselves, but also to, to try and convince the rest of the Cuban reading public that, that they were the original and primary and, and fundamental uh, collaborators of Marti and that their vision of what he had stood for and meant was the one that should be trusted because the process that I described at the beginning of our interview of, 
of the erasure of black participation in the movement and of the redeploying of Marti as a as a symbol of a racial reckoning that's already happened rather than the one that's very much still needs to happen was already taking place within months of Marti's death. And they were already using La Liga kind of symbolically to try and hold that off. And I think it's interesting that you make a special point to say it's not just that Marti participated in La Liga, but that this space created by a community of color influenced how Marti developed politically as well, that it was this reciprocal reciprocal process. Um, and I think that's just such a necessary um, point to make. Uh, and so Marti passes away in 1895. And so it's the mid 1890s. Um, what happens at the end of, of, of this book? Um, you know, you we, we are still with the figures of Rafael Serra, Juan Bonilla. Um, you also talk about Manuel de Jesus Gonzalez. Yeah. All sort of self-described disciples of Jose Martí. Yeah. What becomes of this intellectual community in the late 1890s? Yeah. Well, so w- w- one of the things, you know, the La Liga is the is this place where Marti works out this politics and where, as you point out, my argument is, and I'm really interested to hear what the Marti scholars say back to me. Um, uh, my, my argument is that Mar, you know that Marti didn't really exist as he's remembered, at, you know, as a as a popular Democrat before he had this set of inter, in, interactions. He had observed other social Democrats. He criticized them. He had imagined some as being better than others, and then he had tried to transform himself into one, but really only succeeded because the community that already existed in New York fell in behind him, right? And so he really relied on all that work that that migrants of color who had been creating community as a way of solving the problem of migrating while black had already done. And then Serra and the Bonillas and Figueroa help him by becoming the hinge between that community and him as a politician. And then he's able to capitalize on that and, and eventually turn to other workers in Tampa and in, in Key West and in Kingston and in Port-au-Prince, um, you know, and, and in many ways, his, his influence ends up growing beyond the influence he re- they, they helped him originally to create. Um, and of course, also depends on his privilege as a, as a well-educated and wealthier, not very wealthy, but w- well-educated white man. Um, but then he dies as he, oh, and so, sorry. And, and that, that movement that they help him to, 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 to create then takes a, uh, an organizational form in a new party called the Cuban Revolutionary Party, um, it, starting in 1892, um, and 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 you know really only has a very short life before um, before Marti uh, expires. He goes to to Cuba in 1895 at the beginning of the of the new armed r- r- uh, struggle and dies within a month. Um, and then there's this the the first question of the legacy is what does Marti's party look like without Marti, right? So Marti, they, the, the, the working class uh, social clubs and networks um, of which La Liga was like the first and one of the most important had, had given Marti an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary amount of power within the, within the structure of the organization because they trusted him and because he, in exchange, delegated to them more power than they usually got within the formations of Cuban um, of Cuban politics. So, for example, he was a, a Democrat. He allowed them to, to 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 vote for party leadership. They voted for him, and they allowed him to exert party leadership without actually having to consult 
all of the other notable wealthy Cubans in in New York, right? So they allowed him to sidestep his his wealthier competitors. Um, and in exchange, he expressed commitments to some certain certain kinds of democracy um, and to and and delegated power to them. Once he's removed from the picture, the first question is who's going to replace him? Somebody's going to become the very very powerful leader of this movement. And is that person going to have the same kind of deep trusting relationship with the um, with the clubs the, the, that are the working class democratic base of it? Um, and what kind or if that person does develop that that kind of relationship? what kind of relationship will it be? Will it be a kind of a traditional patron-client relationship? Um, will it look like the way the Republican Party in the United States is treating African-Americans at the time, which is still espousing that the African-Americans should be loyal to this party because of abolition, but no longer really defending African-American rights um, uh, at a significant way and not really living up to the commitment for to, to divide up patronage to African-American or uh, to African-American candidates and, and political figures. So there's all kinds of discussion. And in the end, what's interesting is that the person who comes out as the leader of the party and then eventually is elected the first president of the, of, of the Republic of Cuba after the U.S. invasion um, is not a person who any historian, especially not historians in the era of the 1959 revolution, but even, even before, would identify as being, as being similar to Marti on these grounds. I mean, there's debate about how how democratic Marti really was and how much he was just, you know, saying these things in order to get what he wanted. But there's not much debate about the guy who came after him, uh, Tomas Etra Palma, who was fairly sympathetic to U.S. annexation, who was very sympathetic to the needs uh, and, and desires of international investors and the sugar industry, um, and much more connected to internal politics of Wall Street and Washington, D.C. than to the the freedom fighters on the battlefields of Cuba or the workers in the workshops in the, in, in New York and Key West and, and, and Tampa. And what's really interesting is to wa- is to watch how Figueroa and Serra and the Bonillas respond to that change and how they actually, I, I say that the, the poetry of their alliance with Marti shifts into a kind of a very rigid and turgid prose of a new set of alliances because they do decide to throw their weight as political figures behind this new leader. And they, there's this really interesting dance in which they continually express themselves in private letters as being his great friends, but also warn, you know, if you keep doing this thing you're doing, it's going to be harder and harder for me to keep my supporters in line, right? Because if you keep acting like a racist in public, how many more times I'm going to lose my credibility to, to keep saying to, to, to these supporters that you're not a racist and that we should continue to vote for you. Um, and they actually even managed to pull off a really significant move, maneuver within party politics in which they kind of outflank a group of more conservative, uh, wealthier um, New Yorkers who are trying to shift the, the party around their own interests. And, and, and so, uh, Figueroa and Serra really successfully um, mobilize the, the, what remained of the party structure to, to, to push that group of people to the side and to reassert their, the democratic rights of the, of the party to determine the future of Cuba. Um, and I think that that's, it's only one of the struggles, but it's one of the very important struggles that ends up contributing to a really unusual situation in Cuba in 1900, 1901-1902. Because as you know, I hope you know, listeners know, the United States ended the war in Cuba by intervening in 1898. Um, the Cuban forces, this, this group of people who, which included a mixed race uh, military faction, 
um, with many, many leaders of African descent, uh, with a very strong, uh, popular democratic message, as well as the support of a civilian community with lots of cigar workers who also supported a very uh, popular democratic uh, vision uh, and increasingly anti-imperial vision. Um, The United States, that, that group of people had pretty much won the war against Spain. Spain was losing. The United States intervenes declares victory against Spain. Spain plays the part. They'd much rather be defeated by a new upstart imperial power that is identified as white than be defe- de- defeated by the Cubans, who they see as being as being mixed race and backwards and barbaric. So they, they sign a treaty which doesn't include the Cubans, even though the Cubans probably should have had something to say about it. Um, and then they go, the United States, it's really the first instance in, the, in US history where the United States is in control of a foreign territory and starts to set up a government with the express notion that they're nation building in order for a future withdrawal. And again, listeners, readers will have lived through the experience in Iraq and in Afghanistan and, and other places and will know how problematic and that is, that one can, uh, an imperial power can be de- declaring its support for self-rule and democracy, but can be putting all kinds of conditions on who actually gets to participate in that self-rule and democracy as a, as a condition, precondition for withdrawal. And the United States is really pressuring the Cubans to exclude black Cubans from voting as a condition for withdrawal. And yet, in 1900 and 1901, the, the, the Constitutional Con- Convention in Cuba, which includes a lot of people who were, fit, who were involved in, in these really complicated political formations of the 1890s, they vote almost unanimously to extend uh, suffrage to all uh, men in Cuba, in, 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 independent of... Uh, color, race, or former um, former status as uh, as enslaved people, and without any literacy or property requirements. So the Cubans, in some ways, go back to the the project of radical racial, you know, interracial democracy that had been proposed by the state conventions in Florida and other parts of the South in the early period of Reconstruction, um, at the expressed with to the expressed disappointment and 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 dire threats of the United States imperial uh, intervention. And as a result of this, the United States ends up saying, okay, we will withdraw, but we only withdraw if we can keep the right to intervene uh, in internal affairs in Cuba and, and basically establishes Cuba as a protectorate. But anyway, so that, that those, the argument is that those really interesting uh, political negotiations that happen after Marti is taken out of the party and when this group of really important Afro-descended party operatives try and figure out how to work with a, with a new generation of, of, of uh, political uh, leaders who are competing to take control and to make sure that even as white political leaders fight among themselves for control, and even as many of them are racist and have not much real commitment to black empowerment, they at least are used to, accustomed to the idea that you can only win political power if you appeal at some level to black voters and, and create some alliances with black voters. That persists into the early Republican period. Um, and so when Tomas Estrada Palma, who had been the replacement for Martí in, in, um, in New York, when he was elected the first president of Cuba, he invited Rafael Serra and, and uh, Juan Bonilla and um, uh, Manuel de Jesus González, three figures from La Liga who had been key supporters of Martí, he invites them to accompany him on the kind of triumphal return to Cuba when he goes back. He was he'd actually never returned to Cuba for the election. He just comes back after he's elected, and they travel with him through the entire eastern part of Cuba all the way to Havana, uh, uh, appearing in front of crowds basically as the as the 
the Afro-descended friends of Marti who are going to vouch for this new president and his democratic ways, but also benefiting from their closeness to the president when they appeal, when they turn to black voters in those areas and say, hey, if you want influence over the government, you should throw your loyalties to us. Um, and out of that experience, Serra becomes a very successful politician in early 20th century uh, uh, Cuba, went twice winning uh, election to the House of Representatives. Um, really through his loyalty to um, both his, his ability to mo- mobilize black voters, but also his loyalty to key white politicians. Um, I think that's the answer to your question. I think that's uh, where the book ends. Really. Yeah. It's kind of uh, a full circle of this transnational story that also um, shows us the dynamic process of becoming a politician and becoming uh, a racialized and then post-racial um, uh, thinker in a way. And uh, it's just such a, such a read that is so kind of consuming in, in the storytelling style that, that you, that you give us that uh, an hour and a half isn't enough <laughs> to um, s- summarize it all. And so I really encourage our listeners to uh, take a look for themselves. But before I let you go, I'm sure our listeners would also love to hear what they can expect to read from you next. What are you working on? Um, yeah, well, so I'm, I'm working on two projects right now, One, both of which grow out of this this project. One is that I'm, I'm collaborating with Reed Andrews and Paulina Alberto um, on a, translate, a volume of translations from the Latin American Black Press. Um, so I hope listeners are familiar with their work. Um, both uh, Reed and Paulina have worked on Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay. Um, actually, Reed has worked on Uruguay, but Paulina hasn't. Um, and so they're, they were working, they were discussing the possibility of a volume in which the, uh, a set of intellectual productions by Afro-descended people in each of those countries, which are really not available to um, folks who don't speak Spanish and really not that widely available even to folks who do speak Spanish could be made available to teachers and researchers, you know, comparativists in the United States and, and elsewhere who, who are English dominant. Um, and then they, thankfully, they invited me to, to participate. And so I'm working on, the, on, on bringing uh, uh, examples from Cuba. Um, and we're going to try and, you know, it's going to be a pretty narrow selection, but we'll be able to have 15 or 20 articles from each of those national presses, along with some, some short um, critical essays to try and frame them. So that's super exciting. And there's all this material that was fascinating and wonderful that I found, but didn't, didn't fit into the story that I was telling in the, in the book that I now I'm going to be able to bring to light. Like, you know, the wonderful uh, poem by, by Tomas uh, Carrion Maduro, a Puerto Rican man of African descent who was living in Cuba about his first visit to Haiti, which is just mind blowing. Um, uh, and, you know, some, some really interesting stories uh, that reveal the inner workings of, domestic life in the black community and uh, at least the black readership in, in Cuba, including um, some, some stories about midwives attending to women as they're going through childbirth uh, gives you a a view of the inside of a house, which is something you hardly ever see in the public sphere. So that's, that's project number one. So the other project that I, that I'm working on, which I'm, which is I'm really excited about grows out of the, the book uh, racial migrations. Um, uh, I, during the, the, the book and the research of the book, I was I spent a lot of time working with two wonderful Cuban historians, Aisnara Pereira Diaz and Maria de los Angeles Merino Fuentes, um, 
who helped me to locate materials. Oftentimes when I wasn't able to get down to Cuba, they could, they could go to the archives and get things for me. And then we spent a lot of time emailing and, and talking about what sense to make out of these. And they were actually we, together, we um, using some materials that they had, that they had discovered. We were, we uncovered this really interesting history of the grandparents of Hector de Heredia, um, who had the, this African born generation who became free in Matanzas in the, in the early part of the 19th century and created these social institutions. And there was only, we discovered that at sort of a point when it was possible to add a paragraph to the book, but not really to go deep into it. And so we've, we've started to put together a proposal and we have a plan um, over the next several years to just dig way deeper into that and to see if we can do some, use some, some uh, network uh, mapping software and some other uh, digital techniques to try and really understand what the social relations, what social relations might be visible within the baptismal records of 19th century Matanzas. Because if we have one couple, African-born couple, that show up as the godparents to this wide range of people, and they also happen to also be leaders of Cabildo, we hypothesize that there may be many other nodes like that that are sitting there in plain sight in these papers, but we just haven't been able to make visible yet. Um, and so we're planning to do that, and then at the same time to trace the individuals at the centers of those nodes through all the, the economic documentation to try and figure out how people became free, how they purchased houses, all the kind of economic history that you can see in the notarial records. Um, so I'm really excited about that project. Both of these are projects that are both collaborative and also at their very early stages. Um, but uh, but those are those are two things that I've got in the works. Oh, and sorry, I'll say one other thing. Um, I'm also working on the Spanish translation of Racial Migrations, um, which a, a friend and colleague um, who's a journalist, a journalist, Spanish-speaking journalist named Alberto Arce has has been wonderful enough to to complete and which I'm just working through the revisions of and which will be um, open access published hopefully in the next six or eight months um, for for scholars and colleagues who, who prefer to read in Spanish. That's so awesome because oftentimes, you know, the scholarship gets uh, siloed into a particular country or language. And so that work sounds really important. And I will definitely be on the lookout for those other projects because they just sound absolutely fascinating. And once again, to our listeners, we've been talking to Dr. Jesse Hoffman Garskoff about his brand new book, Racial Migrations, New York City and the Revolutionary Politics of the Spanish Caribbean, out now from Princeton University Press. Jesse, gracias for being with us here on New Books in Latino Studies. Gracias por invitarme. 